going to be reading from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 28 and going down through verse 36. Just to give you a little brief recap of what we've been looking at over the past few weeks, remember that I told you that chapter 9 is a turning point in Luke's narrative, and Jesus is making his journey now down to Jerusalem from Galilee. And we looked at the sending out of the 12 apostles that happens at the beginning of the chapter. We looked at the feeding of the 5,000. And then last week, there's a very climactic point in the gospel in which Peter tells Jesus that he is the Messiah. He's not just a prophet. He's the anointed son of God. That's the first time that that confession is made. And then Jesus tells his disciples about his coming death, and they don't understand him. And he also says in verse 27, but truly I tell you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And that brings us to the text we're looking at this morning The transfiguration. Verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. In the other Gospels, we read that they are told by Jesus not to say anything about it until after the resurrection. Jesus apparently loved to pray on hills and mountains and was consistently seeking such places to hold communion with his father. And while God, we know, is present everywhere, and certainly prayer can be offered to God anywhere at any time, there's no such thing as a bad place for prayer. But still, it doesn't follow that it's equally easy to pray in every single place. The mountaintop high above the commotion, noise, and distractions of everyday life is no doubt a wonderful place to make into a house of communion with God. 
Now, on this particular occasion, Jesus is not entirely alone. He takes with him the favored three, James, John, and Peter. And apparently, this episode occurs at night. At least that's what the text suggests when it tells us that the disciples were heavy with sleep in verse 37. Sorry, in verse 32. And then at verse 37, it begins with the words, the next day. So it appears more probable than not that the transfiguration did occur during the night. So Jesus and his disciples climb up the mountain and Jesus begins to pray. And Luke is the only one who gives us this little bit of information that it's while Jesus is praying that this incredible transformation takes place. Christ's inner communion with the Father results in this display of light. His very body and even his clothes become bright as a flash of lightning, or as Mark puts it, dazzling white, whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them. So we see that the glory of God in this passage reaches even to the very plain and probably drab clothes that Jesus is Wearing. It's a brilliant display of the new creation breaking into the old creation and transforming every facet of it, even the homely aspect of it. And it's for this reason that some people believe that this is what Jesus was referring to when he said, um, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now, that's debatable, but that is the way that some people have chosen to understand it. And I think it's a legitimate interpretation of the text. But not only do we have this brilliant transformation in Jesus, we also encounter two Old Testament figures who arrive unexpectedly on the scene. You have Moses and Elijah. Moses, who was the one chosen by God to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and the one who brought them the law from the smoke of Mount Sinai and Elijah, the prophet who challenged the servants of Baal at Mount Carmel and who serves as an excellent representation of the prophets in general. Therefore, we have these two witnesses now. We have the law and we have the prophets. And both of them are bearing witness to Jesus as the Son of God, who is to complete the mission that they began long ago. They're speaking with him about his departure that he will soon accomplish at Jerusalem. And it's interesting that the word that Luke uses here for departure is actually the word exodus. It's as if Luke is implying that what we're seeing here is a new exodus where Jesus, the new Moses, is leading humanity out of its wilderness of sin and corruption and bringing it into the promised land of new birth and new hope. And the fact that they are speaking with Jesus about his death outside of Jerusalem gives us a hint as to the content of Jesus' prayer. Now, I have noticed that some modern 
Christians seem to have what I would call a little bit of an unbalanced Christology. Now, last week, Bill was rightly emphasizing the divinity and deity of Christ as the Son of God. And, of course, that is what traditional Christianity maintains, that Jesus is of the same substance as the Father. He is the Son of God. But sometimes that reality, that truth, is emphasized to the point that Christ's humanity just gets swallowed up and vanishes in it. And we need to remember that the teaching, the orthodox teaching of the church, is that Jesus is also fully human. He was human in every single aspect except without sin. He's both fully God and fully man. Now that is more of a mystery than an explanation. And how he can be both fully God and fully man, as far as I'm concerned, is better left a mystery. But if we want to know who Christ is, we can't just dismiss his humanity. It appears here that he goes up on this mountain to pray because he is sorely oppressed by the thought of his coming death. And so he flees to the refuge of his father in heaven. It is also interesting that Calvin in his commentary on the scripture also adds that what we see here is Jesus offering himself up willingly, willingly as a sacrifice. He's not someone who is being dragged as a prisoner to the cross. This is, in very, this is very important to my mind because it illustrates the fact that the transfiguration was not the result of God telling Jesus, you know what, you won't have to do it after all. I'm not going to make you go down to Jerusalem. I'm not going to force you to be, well, I'm not going to have you crucified there. And the whole situation is like when I tested Abraham and asked him to offer up his son Isaac. The word comfort means with strength. And that's how Jesus is comforted in this passage and I believe we would fare better as followers of Christ if we would really take his example to heart. And when we're faced with trials, not to approach God in a spirit of grumbling and self-pity, but to approach God in a spirit of submission so that we can humbly seek the grace we need to face whatever trials and obstacles have been ordained for us. It's so much easier for us to just feel sorry for ourselves and start asking questions about why God works the way he works. And when we do that, we are just basically cutting ourselves off from our only source of comfort. We are too ready to treat our misfortunes either as punishments of sin or for sin or as the result of pure chance, forgetting that whatever happens, happens either because God determines it or because God permits it. And the difficulties we encounter ought to be training us 
to understand just how utterly dependent we are upon God and just how deceitful the thought of self-sufficiency is. Now, with that, I come to the disciples' reaction. One can only imagine how the disciples felt to see this supernatural display. And it's by no means surprising that as soon as Peter sees Elijah and Moses leaving, he suggests that they make tents for them and Jesus as well. It's basically like what Peter is saying is, don't go, don't go. Let's just stay here. Let's just make this last. Let's build tents for you and let's stay here on the mountaintop. And it sort of reminds me of going fishing with Pastor Bill. (laughs) Um, Sometimes our problem is not that we are too discontent. Uh, Sometimes our problem is that we're too easily contented. And this seems to be a circumstance in which that happens. Um, We succumb to the temptation to greedily cling to the mountaintop experience and lay our cross down. And why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't Peter want to hold on to that experience forever? But there are several dangers that can result from this kind of attitude. And uh, one of the most obvious is the disappointment that inevitably sets in when the experience doesn't last. Um, One can see the same principle working itself out in the lives of not a few married couples. Um, What I mean is this. I think too many people are eager to identify falling in love with being in love. Now, falling in love is more or less something that happens to us, right? And the feelings that we experience at the beginning of a relationship are oftentimes very near overwhelming. And in a sense, sometimes a minor transfiguration occurs in people when they are in love. Their very face does seem to glow a little bit. And many people, by reading foolish books and watching foolish movies assume that the violent passions that attend the beginning of a relationship are supposed to last forever. And if they don't, it means, well, you weren't really in love and now you have grounds for terminating the relationship when the mountaintop experience doesn't last. But the falling doesn't last forever. Uh, Sooner or later, you're going to have to hit the water and you're going to have to learn to swim. That's what a dive is like. Being in love is not something that is automatic, like falling in love. Being in love requires effort. It requires conscious choice. And if we just try to hold on to that first experience and lament over its passing, what ends up happening in the end is you miss out on other experiences that are supposed to attend a happy and healthy marriage. Um, And that's not the only example I could point to. I mean, I could look at my own life right now and the fact that I sometimes feel a creeping sorrow 
enter into my heart over the fact that my little girl is uh, swiftly growing up. Um, there's a good deal I know that I'm going to miss. I'm going to miss the toothless smile. She's already have, she already has two little teeth poking up. Uh, the playful, unintelligible words, um, and especially getting her out of her crib in the morning. That's, that's one of my most cherished experiences. Although I should quickly add that I feel this sorrow usually when things are going well. Uh, now, when I've got her on the changing table and I'm fighting to keep her hands out of a dirty diaper and I'm just being completely outwitted and outmatched and outgunned by this 10-month infant that's laughing at me the whole time. Uh, you know, I got poop on my hands and on everything else. I don't sit there and say, you know, if only this could last forever. Um, I, I, think, I think I'm making my point here. Uh, on the one hand, it, it's futile to try to make a temporary experience, however great it might be. It's futile to try and make it last forever. And on the other hand, even if you could do it, you would probably find, well, you would find that it's not desirable it's like the Israelites when they were trying to hoard the manna in the wilderness, and because of that, it ended up spoiling. And where would we be if Jesus, Moses, and Elijah had stayed on that mountain? Where would we be right now? Um, on the Mount of Transfiguration, again, I want to stress this, Christ knows that he has the cross ahead of him. And if I'm right in saying that our master's prayer was about his coming death, then I think I could also say that without the cross, there wouldn't have been the transfiguration. The two are strangely connected. And here in the valley of the shadow of death, we have no lasting city. And we need to remember that. We need to remember our own responsibility to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And of course, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to be beaten down with misery or that God doesn't want us to experience faith, hope, and love, and joy. But it does mean that we have to watch ourselves and guard ourselves against discouragement and self-pity. We have to, again, follow Christ's example. He didn't succumb to those temptations. Rather, he went to God, and his father comforted him. And he was aflame with the glory of Almighty God because his eyes were fixed on God. And our duty is to fix our eyes on Christ, who is the only image of God. Let me go with you to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 3. And I want to read to you verses 17 through um, verse 18. Now, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. In other words, what the apostle is telling us in this passage is by fixing our eyes on Christ, which I think we can safely interpret as by thinking Christ, by meditating 
on Christ. Just by doing that, by fixing our eyes on him, we are transformed by him from glory to glory. And it sounds like such a simple thing to do. But if we were to ask ourselves, all right, let me compare the amount of time I spend fixing my attention on my problems, and then let me compare that with the amount of time I spend fixing my attention on Christ, I mean, what would we find if we carried that out honestly? Um, I believe I was in uh, Napa, one of the first times I ever rode a dirt bike, and I, someone like me really doesn't have any business riding a dirt bike. And, you know, just like I have friends who can fish on days uh, for all day, all day long, without end, without sleep or eating, I have friends who love to ride, and so uh, they got me to ride. And it was probably sort of semi against my will, but they convinced me to do this, and so I did it. And um, sure enough, I nearly crashed into a pole, and that's not a that's not surprising. And I get off the bike and my friend walks over to me and he says, you want to know what you were looking at the whole time? You almost crashed into the pole. And uh, he's, you know, I said, the pole. And he goes, yeah. And that's why you almost hit it. Um, and what I'm, I'm not trying to suggest here that we don't need to um, face our problems realistically and the obstacles that we have to endure in this life but what i'm suggesting is that if we want to be transformed we've got to learn to fix our attention on jesus and not see this as a way of escaping our problems but seeing this as the way to confront our problems because that's what jesus did when he had this dark night that he had to pass on the cross, he in, confronted it, he encountered it by communion with God and fixing his eyes on his Father. And with that, we come to the end of the passage. Um, as Peter is suggesting to build tabernacles, a uh, cloud comes and overshadows them and the others, uh, the disciples, on the mountain. And this, once again, reminds us of scenes in the Old Testament where we saw the glory of God appear as a cloud, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple itself. And a voice is heard from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Now, few Christians can boast having the experience of hearing the voice of God audibly. And when you think about it, it's only fitting that this kind of experience should be given to the disciples, even if it is withheld from us, because one, they're living on the other end of the cross than we are, and we have 2,000 years of Christianity piled up behind us. They didn't have all of that. And you've got to think about this. Think about the things that Jesus was telling them. You know, one thing that took me a long time to appreciate is that when Jesus tells them that they're going to have to take up their cross and follow him, that must have sounded just crazy to the disciples when they first heard that. Because as Bill was saying, 
last week, the cross at that point is not a symbol of glory. And by the way, the cross didn't even really become popular in Christian art until after the generations who had seen crucifixions died. And when you have someone who's saying these kind of things, you're going to want some confirmation that he's the right person to follow. The one who's saying, you need to take up your cross and follow me. And that's what the disciples are being given in this passage. They're being given that confirmation that you can listen to this man. You can trust this man. This man is my son. He is my chosen one. Listen to him. And I think that while we don't have the cloud and the voice the way that the disciples did, the commandment nonetheless applies to us today. This is God's son. He speaks the truth and we can trust in him. Let's pray. And uh, the band can go ahead and come on up while I'm praying. Uh, Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for the beautiful day that you've given us this morning. And I ask that we would live in your presence this day and every following day, that you would give us hearts to trust in you, and that you would give us the grace to carry on in whatever circumstance we happen to find ourselves in this morning. We bless your name. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.